you're listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Here's your host, Randy Wilson. Hello and welcome to the Rock Bottom Pro Shop and Turf Maintenance Facility, where today we have something really special. We're about to tell you a story that has been classified top secret for almost 50 years. But before we do that, remember, we're sponsored by Dryject, and I don't even have to tell you how effective Dryject is. Just look around at the courses with the best greens, and you'll see they all use Dryject. You ain't gonna believe this. Old Booth has been dating chicks he met on Tinder. Really? I wish you'd just shut your mouth. You think he'd be dating women his own age, you know, almost a hundred? But no, he likes them 40 years younger than him. Listen, I need to finish this radio show, so how about y'all? No, you ain't heard the best part. He met these Swedish twins on Tinder. Twins? How do you tell them apart? That's what I said. I said, Boof, how do you tell them apart? You know what he said? Please, I'm gonna kill you. Well, he said, well, Hilda wears blue nail polish and her brother Bob has a beard. Well, it's about time. Ludell, next time you take a week off, don't let it turn into a month. We've been struggling to keep things going without a full crew. I'm sorry, I went on a cruise. Ain't you learned your lesson yet about them cruises? Last time you ended up on a boat full of dancers. Was there any girls at all on that ship? Not a one. What kind of cruise did you go on this time? Well, it was supposed to be educational. And I got a free cruise because I fit the criterion of a skilled golf course worker. That sounds a little suspicious. Well, turns out they wanted to transfer my consciousness into a robot. Because the big rich golf courses can't get enough skilled workers anymore. So now you're a trans alien? He's a big fat troll is what he is. Ludell, I would think after all your uh, UFO abductions, they would have easily realized you're trans alien phobic. You're real funny, ain't you? Everything was going fine till they accidentally transferred my consciousness into the wrong robot. Instead of a Toro interstellar golf unit, they put me in a Terminator body. Was that a problem? I reckon so. I tore their fancy laboratory up. Something about being an Austrian robot just makes you want to tear stuff up. Next thing I knew, I woke up on a Greyhound bus rolling down Highway 41. And a month had gone by. So I guess no more cruises for you. That's for darn sure. Oh, here's the bill for the hospital in Phoenix City. You owe $80 for this band-aid and uh, $2 billion for the robot body I lost. And also, I think I sunk their ship. Tell you what, just sit down and listen to story time. I have a story that's been kept secret for decades, and it's much worse than your little trans robot thing. What about the two billion? We'll just take it out of your paycheck. Say, two dollars a week? Probably pay it off faster than the government will pay back that seven trillion they've recently wasted. It's story time. Sometimes a story can't be told until everyone involved is dead. This is that kind of story. Once upon a time, about 50 years ago, there was a raggedy little golf course out in the hinterlands twixt Atlanta and some other famous golf city. It was four miles to the nearest crossroads with a blinking red light and nine miles to a half-decent little restaurant, the kind that served what was known as plate lunches and iced tea. Back in those days, we called it iced tea, not sweet tea. That horrible diabetes trigger known as sweet tea only showed up after the American diet had been converted to corn syrup sugar and the rate of type 2 diabetes surged by 40% in just one year. 
Anyway, this raggedy little course didn't have a superintendent, just a young fellow who had served as an assistant superintendent on a country club, and was in truth just a night waterman. In those days, only the big budget operations had spray rigs, so irrigation was the important factor at small clubs, followed by fertilizer, five gangs, and some way to punch holes in hall sand, which was spread by means of flat-tipped shovels. This golf course, we'll call it, um, Gamora, for reasons I probably won't explain later, was the typical country nine-holer with no houses around. Half the irrigation system was subterranean, and the other half was above-ground aluminum pipe connected to a fire hose, which was connected to a gasoline pump that teetered unsteadily on a rotten platform over a small but deep lake. The foot valve in the lake required constant attention due to large snapping turtles finding ways to clog the intake and commit turtle suicide, thereby filling up the pipes with turtle bones sure to find their way into sprinkler heads and green valves. Gamora had a barn, an actual barn, but it was rarely used due to the population of large rats that resisted any attempt at eviction. They kill cats and broke mousetraps, but were susceptible to headshots from a 22 rifle, especially if a hunk of cheese smeared with jiffy peanut butter was placed on a sand pile. The crew, both of them, preferred the old tried-and-true version of a maintenance facility, the five-gang chained to an oak tree next to a picnic table. The night waterman was sitting on the picnic table, enjoying a plate lunch and iced tea acquired at the previously mentioned restaurant, when one of the owners of Gamora rolled up in his powder blue convertible Cadillac that looked like it had once belonged to Elvis. The owner, known as Mr. Lou, spoke fluent Chicago, dressed way too slick for rural Georgia, and had kind of an overbearing management style, as if to suggest that failure to obey instructions might result in sudden unexplained death. Mr. Lou puffed away on a big cigar as he extricated himself from the caddy by means of a sort of rolling sideways motion and once free of the red leather, rearranged his belt, his tie, and his almost brimless hat. Afternoon, Mr. Lou, said the night waterman, not sure if he should stand and salute or just try to remain cool. Yeah, yeah, replied Mr. Lou as he looked around. Listen, I know you've been working every night watering the grass, but I want you to take tonight off, understand? The night waterman shook his head slightly as if one of the two didn't understand. Mr. Lou, it hasn't rained in 15 days and the course is dry, really dry. If we don't... I said, I want you to take off tonight. Here's 20 bucks. Go see a flick. Now, in those days, $20 was a lot of money. About half a week's pay for a night waterman. So the night waterman nodded in the affirmative, took the money, and watched as Mr. Lou roared off into the dusty distance, leaving a rooster tail of dirt and gravel and cigar smoke. That night, night waterman went to the drive-in picture show with Honey, a friend of the female persuasion, and... They watched an artistic film about the troubles faced by attractive young farm girls trying to find love and happiness in haylofts and haystacks and the back seats of various automobiles. Although the plot was somewhat lacking, the attempts at romance by the farm girls was nothing short of inspiring. Night Waterman and Honey enjoyed the film very much, and after taking her home, he became concerned about the 328 on his greens. After much worrying, Night Waterman decided to slip out to the course, sneak across the field, and check on things. It wasn't that much he could do, so he had to admit to himself that it was really just curiosity driving him to such a foolhardy decision. Perhaps it was the hormonal response to the movie about farm girls, but Night Waterman was convinced that something wild and crazy might be going on at Gamora. Maybe even a party with loose morals and Caligula stuff, like, you know, togas and wine and vomitoriums. Creeping through the woods behind the old barn, he was almost there when he heard a terrible roar, and the ground shook like an earthquake. He heard a scream and saw lights on number 8 fairway. 
Realizing he was in over his head, Nightwater Man turned and ran through the woods, across the field, and then he drove his old VWS failure at speeds approaching 40 miles an hour back to civilization. Bright and early the next morning, Nightwater Man mounted his three-wheeled Cushman, also known as the Wrist Breaker, and went out to check the situation. Even though Number 8 Fairway was closer to hardband and turf, there were tire tracks all over the place. Big truck tires had been driven by folks with no concept of how to drive on a golf course as opposed to, say, a parking lot. As he stood there trying to decide how to repair the damage, he noticed a new bump further up the fairway. At first, Night Waterman thought it might be a dead deer, or perhaps the top of a tree had fallen onto the fairway. Maybe that earthquake last night broke a big tree and caused all that screaming. When he drove the wrist breaker over to examine the bump, he was still 20 yards away when he realized it wasn't a tree. Out of the tangle of misshapen parts protruded a human hand, broken and mangled and pointing in strange directions. Night Waterman stared at the mess and it came into focus. Smashed bones and blood and intestinal matter blended with gooey stuff that appeared to have been dragged across the turf for several yards. When the sheriff showed up with the coroner, they whispered back and forth in that high-pitched way that adults under pressure are wont to do, and the volume increased way past whisper levels and made it possible for Night Waterman to hear the occasional word. He heard, hit by a truck, and you better keep this quiet, and he ain't American before the two verbal combatants realized they were not whispering. They stopped talking and slowly swiveled their heads in unison until they fixed on Night Waterman, who had survived until the ripe old age of 20 by appearing to be unaware in dangerous situations like parental arguments and traffic stops with blinking red lights and questions like, well then whose baggie is it? The sheriff motioned Night Waterman over and in that stereotypical growl of the southern sheriff said, Boy, you best keep your mouth shut about all this or you can end up charged with murder, you hear? In his best Sergeant Schultz, Night Waterman nodded vigorously and replied, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I know know nothing. I saw nothing. That's good, boy. That's real good. Now go back to mowing lawns, whatever it is you do, and keep your mouth shut. Later that day, while pulling the five gang around with a tractor from 1952, trying to breathe in a cloud of black smoke and diesel fuel emitted by the best of Massey Ferguson's post-war efforts, the powder blue caddy drove out onto the course and blocked the MF as it tried to make a wide sweeping turn on three fairway. Night Waterman, his vision blurry and obscured by the thick black smoke, managed to avoid hitting the caddy by standing up on the clutch and yanking the wheel hard left because, you know, the brakes hadn't worked since 1968. What'd you tell the sheriff? Nothing, Mr. Lou. I don't know nothing to tell. Hey, well, good for you, said Mr. Lou as he offered another $20 bill from the comfort of his red leather upholstery. Night Waterman trotted over and took the money, resisting the urge to bow and tip his old boonie hat. Thank you, Mr. Lou. Can I water tonight? We're dry as Yankee biscuits out here. Sure, sure. Go ahead, Mr. Lou said, and then he drove off trying to light a cigar with the top down. A couple of months passed. Night Waterman had successfully kept his mouth shut, and his pay had gone up by a dollar a week. He had survived the hiring and firing of a new, fresh-out-of-college superintendent, who only lasted six days, a new general manager who lasted almost an entire hour, and Night Waterman even survived an attempt by Honey at matrimonial blackmail. Since Night Waterman was now among the wealthy upper class, Honey was determined to cultivate him as husband material. But he was resistant to the idea of nuptial side, so she embarked on a strategy to force Night Waterman to the connubial sacrificial altar, claiming she was in the family way. 
Honey went so far as to threaten to invoke a traditional shotgun ceremony, at least until Night Waterman pointed out that nothing they had done in the VW camper at the drive-in that night, including French kissing, could have led to reproductive multiplicity, and that if she was truly en route to a life of attending PTA meetings and bake sales, Night Waterman was not responsible. Night Waterman was soon promoted to Acting Interim Superintendent, or AIS, an acronym easily confused with the Command AIS, or Ass in Seats. AIS in the non-golf sense was a command normally issued to kids and wives dawdling around instead of getting in the car to go somewhere. Anyway, when he was promoted to AIS, Night Waterman proudly attended his first association meeting of the golf course superintendent's Georgia section, an informal event known as an outing, a totally different term than today's meaning. In those days, it was only $4 to attend, listen to some expert offer his opinion on golf course management, and then receive points for the spray license. Then they went out and played 18 holes, drank a beer afterwards, and swapped turf management tips. Unless it was more than one beer, and that usually triggered stories instead of turf tips. Somewhere around the fourth beer, which was four too many for Night Waterman, he let slip the story about the body found on the fairway to a fellow Night Waterman, an older man stationed at a course down below the infamous Nat Line. The Nat Line was a visible line wherein once you had crossed over a geographic barrier consisting of a wall of gnats somewhere in the vicinity of Macon, you were immediately attacked by gnats. Biting gnats, sand gnats, blood-sucking gnats, and the worst kind, the eyeball divers, fearsome little beasts intent on suicidal kamikaze penetrations of human eyeballs. His tongue loosened by the devil alcohol, Night Waterman explained that a body showed up on a fairway one night. A body that appeared to have been stomped, crushed, killed, dragged, and partially eaten by a werewolf. It was whisked away the next morning in a curtain of silence even more impenetrable than the JFK assassination or the Roswell UFO crash. The older night waterman, Hornwell Besker, more commonly called Hornby, was not impressed, and even went so far as to claim prior knowledge of that incident and others just like it. Had the same thing happen on my course just last year. A disintegrated body was found in a sand trap on the back nine. Really? Nightwaterman's jaw hung slack like either an imbecile or a marine. What caused it? Hornby looked around to see if anyone was listening, leaned forward and whispered, Space aliens. Seen it my own self. Big mothership flew over, stuff falling out of it, and blasted some poor fool with a laser beam or maybe a death ray. Coroner took one look and knew exactly what it was. Aliens. Told me never to talk about it ever. They would come get me and do the same thing. Night Waterman stared for a moment and then said in a soft voice, But you're talking about it right now. Ain't you worried? No. I get drunk every Saturday night and tell anybody who'll listen, but nobody ever believes me, except in you. Two weeks later, Night Waterman, AIS, was airifying Gamora's greens with a four-time pitchfork and a pickup truck full of river sand, when Mr. Lou drove right up to the green in his powder blue caddy, got out and walked over while trying to light a cigar. Hey, yo, line boy, how about you take tonight off? Don't come around here no matter what, understand? He waved a 20, which Nightwaterman AIS accepted with a nod. Yes, sir. Oh, and uh, I'd be more careful about your choice of lady friends. We had to pay her off to stop yammering about you taking advantage of her in that rolling bedroom of yours. Paid her off? I didn't do anything. Mr. Lou blew smoke in Nightwaterman's general direction. Sometimes it's better to avoid the appearance of evil than to be innocent. Know what I mean? Uh, I think so. How much did you have to pay? Cost us a cool 50 bucks, bucko. 
so try to restrain yourself tonight. Night Waterman did not go to the drive-in picture show that night. He dressed in his best hunting clothes, his faded red plaid shirt, and the jeans he usually wore to paint houses in. Kind of give him a camouflage effect. He added a black stocking cap because he'd seen folks wear those in every movie since 1944 that required stealthiness. He slipped into the woods along number 8 fairway and waited. He waited and waited. And soon he was rewarded with activity. Several pickup trucks and one rental truck pulled into the trees between 8 fairway and 3 fairway. A bunch of men, not golfers, got out and they all milled around smoking cigarettes and talking quietly until just before midnight. At some prearranged signal, they ignited what appeared to be candles in mason jars and placed them in two parallel lines on the fairway. Night Waterman's first thought was, these are space aliens in disguise and they're, they're signaling their buddies. Moments later, a voice crackled on a radio and one of the alleged space aliens on the ground began waving a flashlight. Within seconds, the roar Night Waterman had experienced months before returned along with the ground shaking and the voice screaming. He stepped out of the trees just far enough to look for the spaceship and was disappointed to see in the dark of the new moon a World War II bomber flying so low that it could touch the tops of the pine trees lining the fairway. The old B-25 thundered closer, moving at what night waterman guessed was probably 200 miles an hour, making corrections as if it intended to land. The nose yawed back and forth, a wing dipped, and just before it drew even with Night Waterman and the trucks, objects began spilling out of the bottom of the aircraft, tiny drag chutes attached. A small man appeared to be kicking the objects out of the opening, screaming and desperately trying to hold on to the plane's ribcage. The drag chutes pulled open larger chutes out of the objects, which by now, in the glare of the truck lights, Night Waterman could see the objects were bales the size of refrigerators, wrapped in either burlap or whatever they made fire hoses out of. In seconds, the bales were on the fairway, and the men were driving out in the midst of the chaos, scurrying around, loading up the packages before vanishing into the dark. It was quiet again. Night Waterman remained motionless until he was sure that nobody had remained behind, and then he silently retraced his path back to the VW. The next day, an Atlanta radio news station ran a story about a vintage aircraft crashing in the mountains, and Night Waterman wondered if it was the same old bird he had seen. After a short phone call from Mr. Lou, Night Waterman packed a small bag and headed for Atlanta. In a matter of hours, he was standing in front of a recruiter, taking an oath and signing all sorts of papers. Six days later, Night Waterman had changed his name to Army Private and was seriously missing his mornings on the golf course, especially when he asked about the promises made by his recruiter. Hey, when do I get my pilot's license? Sergeant Mayhew said I was supposed to be first in line. You idiot, yelled the drill sergeant. This ain't the Air Force, it's the Army. You signed up for the Airborne. You be jumping out of airplanes, not flying them. But what about my pilot's license? See that wheelbarrow? I want you to use that to move that pile of dirt from there over to there, and then I want you to move it back over here. Pile it over here and pile it over there. Got any questions? So who was this mysterious night water man? Whatever happened to him? Well, I can't tell you who he was, but he did become a famous superintendent. Who was it? Who Was it Hoban? No. Wait, I know who it was. You've been listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. 